0: Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And once a month, as always, uh, we talk about interesting and controversial subjects uh, with Emily Jashinsky. Emily is a fellow with us over at IWF, um, but she is also the culture editor over at The Federalist. Um, She is... Raising up the next generation of intrepid young journalists uh, over at Young Americas Foundation. Um, and you've seen her frequently on Rising. You've seen her in all kinds of places. Um, so, Emily, welcome back to another After Dark episode.
1: And as I'm filing a formal complaint, uh, because you've once again uh, just completely demoted me from senior fellow to fellow, <laughs> and I am That's senior. True.
0: <laughs> Well, maybe I'm I just kidding. am not, a, I'm not used to associating the word senior with you because yeah. you're constantly calling me senior.
1: I think so you just old. think of me as like a senior in college.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting to that point where I can't tell the difference between people in college and in high school. So that's how old I am. That's good, though. <laughs> <laughs> um. I, I was.
1: I won't go to the joke that I was going to make. But people can sort of fill in the blanks.
0: Thank, thank you, Emily. I, I appreciate your respect for your elders. Uh, but we're not going to. We're not just here to talk about how I'm old. We are here to talk about uh, a variety of things that have caught our attention over the the last month. Um, and the first thing on this docket of issues uh, is this very illustrative poll, um, which shows that the Democratic advantage. Among college-educated voters is now larger than their advantage with white, or I'm sorry, non-white voters. Meaning, the whole you know demographics is destiny. Train the the coalition um, coming together uh, for the Democratic Party in perpetuity. That does not seem to be nearly as certain as it once did. Um, and and on the flip side support among college educated Americans, in other words, sort of the upper middle class to sort of professional class uh, voters, that advantage is solidifying and growing for the Democratic Party. So, Emily, what what do you think about the fact that, um, you know, the, these two sort of conceptions of visualizing who the typical Democratic voter is, what the Democratic base or the left base in America looks like? Um, you know, this seems to be confirming a lot of what you've been saying for quite some time about realignment, about the, the you know, working class voters basically fleeing of all races, um, fleeing the Democratic Party. So uh, what's your take on this poll?
1: I think it's really sad. Um, and I understand why people on the right are tempted or, or do outright see it as good news. but. It's really sad to me because from a deeper perspective, it confirms what Charles Murray uh, sketched out with data and coming apart. And the logical conclusion of that is is only a bad thing because it means that uh, the the Democratic Party, basically, if you think about it, is con- in control. Uh, this was a line from Josh Hawley's campaign. He used it a lot uh, back in what was that 2017, 2018. He would say, uh, you know, he, he would rail against Hollywood. Washington and Wall Street, and he was one of the only Republicans at the time that really understood about you know campaigning on on culture. And you know when you're you're railing against Wall Street and Washington and Hollywood, that's really cultural. Not to say that it doesn't have economic uh, or you know granular policy implications. Of course it does. But there's a a cultural populism that you're tapping into when you sort of list that trifecta. And uh, the reason I find the poll to be very sad is because if you think of who's in control of Hollywood, Washington. Washington. Washington and Wall Street, it is the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party, as I think this poll bears out, is increasingly completely divorced from a huge swath of the country. And uh, the reason people are are sort of fleeing the Democratic Party and going to the Republican Party is because um, it's it's less because of what Republicans sort of affirmatively offer and more because of what Democrats are aggressively uh, no longer offering. Um, And I'm not sure the Republican Party will always be a good landing base. Uh, the The incentives are kind of there now, and we see Republicans start talking about cultural issues. They're standing up for you know, women's rights, for instance. Um, they're advancing legislation that is more pro-worker than pro-business. Nothing wrong with being pro-business, but when you're being pro-business over pro-worker, that's obviously the wrong side of the balance. Um, and so we're seeing them respond to some of these incentives. Uh, we're seeing them respond more populist sort of positions on, let's say, Ukraine, depending on who you're talking to. Um, but. All that is to say, the people who are really firmly in control of our culture and much of our policy um, are not just opposed or not just, you know, out of touch with a a lot of people in the rest of the country. They are opposed to them. Um, They disrespect them. Uh, They don't understand them. They disrespect them. They're aggressively sort of in opposition to what they believe in and what they stand for. So I get seeing this as good news because I think it is shifting some incentives um, in the GOP. But at the same time, it just makes Makes me really sad um, how how we've like literally come apart as a country.
0: It also shows how important the the opinions of of a select class really are um because this you would not think that this is a good thing for the democratic party right you would think there would be a lot of very loud voices within the democratic party you know raising the alarm about this considering that you know college educated americans are still a minority of the country um but it it shows how much power this professional managerial class actually has um in, in whether that's in in government or whether that's in the private sector, the fact that they can outweigh far beyond their sort of numerical um, numbers or numerical numerical numbers what a what, a, <laughs> what an eloquent phrase for me right there um, far beyond their weight they can pull far beyond their weight within the democratic process um, and and I think it shows actually um, I guess. I, I was a little more triumphalist about this, but maybe maybe you're right. Maybe we shouldn't be thinking about it in triumphalist terms because uh, both because of the the reasons that you brought up, but also because this is you know, it is yet again, a confirmation that we don't really have, we aren't submitting a lot of issues to democracy, right? We're not really submitting a lot of issues to to the American people and then like really taking in uh, their opinions and then actually transforming it into policy. And I, I got a lot of, I got into trouble on, on Twitter this week for fighting with um, Tom Nichols, uh, <laughs> who's, who's always fought fair with me. So uh, I'll give, I'll give the guy that, but um no, But I, I shocked him by saying, actually, and I, I'm no, I'm not by nature sort of a radical small D Democrat, but um, I honestly think in the last 30 years, if we had conducted policy by plebiscite, if we just put everything to the vote, like a mass popular vote, we would be in like infinitely better off right now. The oh,
1: you are come- too Californian. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> sure. With your your anti-Republican plebiscite propaganda.
0: Yeah, no, I'm not saying this is, the, this is the best form of government. I don't think it is. But what I'm saying is, if we had just taken a plebiscite of the American people on every major issue in the last 30 years, and if you just go down the list of all of the mistakes that our ruling class has made, I actually think that it would have been a superior outcome for the United States over the last 30 years. And, and that doesn't mean that I think plebiscites are the best way to govern yourself. I'm just saying that our ruling class has made so many de- like bad decisions over the course of the 30 years and has no humility about those decisions at all um, to the extent that I think actually, I guess this is the extended version of the Buckley thesis, right? The, the top, you know, top names in in the Boston phone book rather than the faculty (laughs) at Harvard. I mean, at this point, I think it's better to have a plebiscite than to have um, this, this particular like sort of, professional managerial blob class making decisions because they have gotten so far out of touch. But but speaking of having absolutely no humility, uh, there is this, this very fun article in Vanity Fair that just came out um, about it's very upset that Republicans may not submit their candidates to the mainstream media um, during the debate. The the, debate cycle and, and the election cycle that they're talking about, you know, maybe throwing some of those debates to conservative media outlets, or, um, you know, having their candidates sit down with conservative podcasts rather than um, going to the New York Times or, or the Washington Post. So um, th- I, I thought this article was really funny, because it just has this overwhelming sense of butthurt to it, <laughs> or it's like, I can't believe you guys are not listening to us anymore. Um, but, but what do you think, uh, you're you're the you're the media critique uh, critic extraordinaire over here. So, uh, what do you, what do you think about this decision, potential decision by Republicans to just sort of ignore the mainstream media?
1: It's incredibly vindicating um, because this is a a drum that I've been banging for a really long time. Um, and you know, Molly Hemingway, obviously, I'm not alone in this. Others have as well. But um, this was really clarified during the Trump administration when it was very obvious that when they had a scoop, the Trump administration, you know, almost always was still going to what they would have described as the fake news to uh, give journalists that information. This is sort of like behind the scenes journalism stuff. People don't just stumble onto deep throat in a parking garage. Um, you know, there, there are tips and there are, it scoops given to, to different publications that you obviously have to present fairly, and you have to do your due diligence and report it out and make sure what you're being told is accurate. But the Trump administration often uh, was dishing out its information more often than not was dishing out information, serious information, substantive stories to the people that it was at the same time trying to undercut and uh, railing against as the fake news media. And what's interesting to me about that, or what was frustrating to me about that is if you want to undercut the power of the fake news media, which does not the so-called fake news media, which does not deserve the legitimacy that it has. uh, And it doesn't deserve the access that it gets from Republican politicians. If you really want to undercut their power, you need to give them incentives to reform and incentives reform. What do they want? They want access. And of course they want access. Um, they want access. Maybe they don't want access to Ted Cruz, but they want access to people who are going to tell them dirt about Ted Cruz, which is often other people in the GOP. Um, that was just a hypothetical. But um, so if you're going to keep feeding the hand that bites you, um, you are doing the opposite. You're empowering in industry, that you're trying to disempower? And are you really trying to disempower them is the question that I would ask the the Trump administration. Are you more interested in the short term gains for yourself and your administration? Um, and I think the answer was the latter for a lot of folks over there who, who just wanted, you know, to mess with other people and to leak against other people and to get their own names in print and et cetera. Et cetera. So all that is to say, when the RNC pulled out of the official presidential debate commission, they're still going to do debates, but that happened a few months ago. Um, another example, basically they were saying you have done nothing that we have requested. You have shown no evidence that these debates are going to be structurally more fair. Um, and for that reason, we're just simply not cooperating with you and we're going to find another way to put on a fair debate. And so this Vanity Fair story, you know, you get reporters grumbling saying, Oh, the Republicans just aren't talking to us anymore. Hey, listen, Obviously, there has to be a balance. Um, you know, I don't want like the they lead with this example of a summit that I think the DeSantis, uh, the Ron DeSantis, put on in Florida this last weekend, which I wasn't able to go to, but I wanted to go to. Um, that was mostly conservative media. Okay, so if if it's true that generally, you know, they're going to start revoking access for the the legacy media when they've demonstrated that they're not going to, you know, be accurate, which is why you give journalists access. If you're if you're going to revoke it, then yes, conservative media is going to need to ask really hard questions they are not going to need to, um, you know, want they're not they shouldn't act as stenographers for powerful Republican politicians, that's not going to put us in a better place at all. Um, but I think conservative media does a better job of doing that than legacy media does, surely. So all this is to say, it's great, because Legacy media needs incentives to improve and to be better. Some of them are starting to say, well, fine, we don't need to talk to Republicans. You're all a bunch of bigoted liars, um, but that's not sustainable for them at all all. And they're in for a rude awakening if they think it is sustainable for them. Uh, so it's a it's a big step to sort of giving media incentives to be fair. Um, if, if they want to have access to Republican politicians, if you want a Republican can to come on CNN, if you want a Republican to uh, come on uh, MSNBC, which they really don't. But if you want a Republican to talk to The New York Times, The Washington Post um, ever, you should give them incentives and that incentive would be saying, I'm going to hold you to the standards of journalistic ethics that you claim to be holding yourself to.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, when you were talking, I was thinking about the the interview that Jonathan Swan of Axios gave Trump um, during his presidency. And to, and to me, that was like really the gold standard of, of what yes. I want every president to be subjected to, which is it wasn't gotcha questions. There was a lot of pushback and, um, that, that's the kind of tough interview that people wielding this amount of power should be subject to in a free country. I just want the media to do that to their team. And and there's under, underlying um, structural stuff here, too. Like uh, the AP just changed their um, their standards for talking about, for example, trans issues and basically excludes. Um, half the debate right off the bat with with by the the language that they're requiring reporters to write about this issue in. You're not allowed to uh, talk to anyone who uses the word groomer without pointing out in the article that it's a false term. I mean, that's just like that's that's not journalism. Um, and and these are obvious points. I mean, everybody listening to this podcast knows that the you know the legacy media, the corporate media, whatever you want to call it, is not. Unbiased. I don't think I have very many listeners who who believe uh, in in the idea um, of, of an unbiased media. But I do I do take your point. It's a, it's actually a, a good consideration. Um, you know, th- this does put more responsibility on conservative outlets and and independent outlets, frankly, um, to step up to the plate to actually um, give a tough but fair interview, uh, to set a debate in a tough but fair way where you ask questions that people are concerned about. Um, but that's that's not what has been going on. And I'm, I'm glad to see Republicans pushing back and, and sort of not giving the, I guess Spencer Clavin would call it the honors, right? Um, the, not give the credibility to Institutions that have spent the last several decades throwing their credibility in the trash over and over and over again, and are now somehow butthurt and angry that people have no longer consider them credible, right? Yeah. Um, and and it's while it is fun to watch. I mean, I will admit I have a ton of like sort of <laughs> I get a, I get a lot of, Freud out of the, yeah, this, yeah, Schadenfreude out of reading this because they're so surprised, right? They're so surprised that after throwing away their credibility for so long that they don't have any left. And that's because the
1: Trump administration talked to them. Like the Trump administration was leaking to them and talking to them all the damn time. The administration
0: leaked so much stuff to the New York times. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And they had so they had no incentive to actually um, be better. And if you give them no incentive, I mean, again, like I think Republicans, you just mentioned something really important about independent outlets. And I, I think, you know, if Republicans want to close access to the legacy media, um, I, I, I'm a journalist. I favor transparency in every single step of the way. Transparency for accurate, good journalists, even the bad journalists. Um, you know, you can give them access and be willing to be transparent with the public. Like, but. Um, that means if you're if you're going to start, you know, trying to give incentives to legacy media not to be so craven and corrupt, then invite independent outlets that are doing a good job in. That means have, you know, even if they're ideologically opposed to you and are going to ask tough questions, if you really truly believe in freedom of the press and you really believe in the power of the press and the fourth estate, which most politicians, I don't know that they actually do, but if you're truly somebody who believes in our system of Republican government, then you know how important the fourth estate is. It's in the First Amendment, like, you, you know how important it is um, to functioning as a Republican system, um, then you need to be aware that tough questions are absolutely essential. And the best way to get that is to have invite Glenn Greenwald, invite Barry Weiss, invite Matt Taibbi's outlet, um, invite independent journalists, invite Sagar and Crystal's outlet, you know, invite them in alongside conservative media, because they're fair. Um, and that's the the main thing that's going to it can't just be giving access to conservative media, it has to be, um, you know, giving access to people who are just going to be fair, doesn't mean they're going to be a voice of God neutral, but it means they're going to be fair. Um, and they can be open about their perspective and their ideology, but they're not going to lie. They're not going to um, you know, be completely corrupt and biased and exclude relevant details and perspectives for the sake of, uh, you know, advancing a narrative. Uh, so I, I just think that this is a really important and positive development. It also means that Republicans have to, you know, walk that line um, in the appropriate way. But more importantly, I mean, the number one thing here is the media just uh, needs incentives to actually do what it says it's going to do.
0: You mean they have to earn the credibility that they've lost.
1: Right. Right. It's an interesting concept.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've never even thought about it this way before they have to earn the credibility and the trust of people who are reading and, and, uh, interacting with their work. What a concept. Um, so for that reason, I do recommend reading this article because the, the, the sheer shock at being held to account for anything, um, is, is just really amusing to watch. But, um, I want to transition subjects here to something that's actually much less amusing. It's like really depressing. Um, this is a New Yorker article, uh, that got published a couple weeks ago. It's called a hookup, a hookup app for the emotionally mature. It's by a woman named Emily Witt. Um, and it just details, uh, sort of her life in her late thirties into her forties, um, dealing with, with sort of, um, dating apps and, uh, but it frames it all as this, this very sort of sexually liberating, um, experience and how this, this app that separates, you know, some things like erotic friendship from, from romance, um, is, is so emotionally mature and so much better. Um, and we need, we need an app for that. Um, I, I guess what, what's, tr- what struck me when I was reading this is, uh, the realization and it's, it's not really a realization, but the reminder that, Uh, a lot of times sexual freedom um, is actually the rationalization or the, the cope working backwards. And I feel like it's, it's very um, obvious in this article to anybody who sort of reads it with an open mind is, is basically, and she even says at one point, you know, basically I was forced into sexual liberation because um, the things that I wanted to happen in my life didn't happen right romantically. Um, And I knew that my life would not look like my parents. And of course she frames it in, in sort of a, uh, here, I'll, I'll read what she said. I was 39, <laughs> scared by the idea that I would not be reproducing the kind of heteronormative nuclear family I had grown up in. Um, I had wandered the sidewalks of my Brooklyn neighborhood where discarded mass littered the gutters with a sense of having been exiled from my own life. Um, my apartment with its cat and its plants still existed, but was no longer my home. I could get a glass of cold Prosecco at my favorite bar, uh, but the people I used to see there seemed to have vanished. Um I I think, I don't know, just this, this, um, article just, there's so many sad things about it, but I I think it was a a really good reminder that, um, a lot of times the ideology, and I think I need this reminder because I'm very like sort of abstract and ideas first and, and, um, consequences downstream from ideas. Uh, but this was a good reminder for me that oftentimes that's not how it works in people's lives. They, um, you know, they respond to, things in their lives by rationalizing out an ideology for it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a very human impulse, actually. But I'm curious what you thought about this article.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a the, the place that you just took the conversation isn't where I originally was going to go, but it was making me think of something I was thinking of over the weekend. Um, and increasingly, as I have these conversations with people on the right about uh, you know, just people on the left who are doing crazy, depraved things, um, or are so lost, um, that it, it's, it's just profoundly sad. I, I have a hard time getting angry, um, or like actually even having that, like, visceral sense of hatred anymore because, I don't blame, like, I can actually just really see how easily your mind goes from point A to point B. So, like, if you have been conditioned by every single you know, mainstream institution, um, to, See the world in a, through a sort of postmodern lens, then it makes complete sense that you're going to have all of these mistaken ideas about meaning and you're going to have all of these mistaken ideas about marriage and children. Um, for instance, it's like when Naomi Wolf wrote that great essay, um, back in, was that great? It's, it's great from the perspective of being clarifying in, uh, the New Republic in like 1995 or 1996 where she said uh, the pro-choice left and the feminist left uh, needs to be clear about what's happening in abortion. We shouldn't pretend that those images that pro-life protesters hold up outside abortion clinics of babies uh, being mangled and uh, dismembered in very graphic ways we shouldn't pretend that those are propaganda. We shouldn't pretend that those are fake. Um, we should acknowledge that's exactly what's happening and acknowledge we believe that it's within a woman's right. You know, we it is more favorable to our arguments. Be honest about that. And. It's interesting because it's like, yeah, when you're sort of floating in this moral relativistic ether, um, I just, I understand why you believe and you're so, you're so much more easily swayed into believing things like hookup culture is a, a hallmark of equality and hookup culture will make you feel empowered. And children are, uh, you know, entirely just a, a, and non-necessary, traditionalistic, you know, I can, I can live my life into my fifties and there will be a high probability that I will be happy if I have money, if I have fulfillment in a career that, you know, has, has maximized my potential. Um, uh, but I'm not married and I have children and I can travel and I can, you know, have a cute little Nancy Myers farmhouse, whatever it is. Um, You know, you can see how how that all sounds a lot better, Um, but we're also seeing how it really hurts people in real time. And it's really, I think the story shows how sad that is. We're kind of watching people's, um, we're watching people's build on sandy foundations um, and watching that all crumble around us. And it's just kind of horrible.
0: Well, now I'm curious as to what you were originally going to say about this article before I I took it down this way, but um... Yeah, I mean, I, there is the, I go back and forth. And I mean, I, I go back and forth on how sort of direct and angry to get about this, about some of these things, because there is there is a value to, to the point of your example, there is a value of, you know, just announcing the truth, um, even if it's painful and even if it engenders this kind of rationalizing pushback, there is a value in hearing the truth. Because oftentimes people, even though they push back on you in the moment, like I know I've, I've changed my mind about things in this way, right? Where even though I, I Pushed back really hard in the moment against somebody arguing a particular point. it stuck and burrowed in my head, um, and I kind of kept coming back to it and working on it, and found that maybe a year later my views on that subject had changed because of that conversation. Um, so on the one hand, I think there's there is a value, especially when the the consequences of sort of directly speaking the truth are so. Um, are so scary, frankly, uh, in our, our society today. When when we're talking about you know losing your job, losing your entire social circle, for for example, declaring the truth about biological differences between men and women, right? Something that that fundamental. Um, I do think that there's value in being direct about these things and actually just saying the truth. Um, and and but I I do think on the flip side, it does tend to engender this uh, very human sort of. Rationalization, pushback, and you can dig people deeper by antagonizing them in that way. You can dig them sort of further in because, uh, to to the point of this piece, right? Um, if this woman who wrote this piece, right? What is what is she going to do at this point with that information? Um, you can say, you know, about this this profoundly sad piece. Wow, that sounds really sad. Um, you know, this is this is why. You know this is why young women in their twenties shouldn't um listen to what our culture says about marriage and family and they if they find a, a, a good person to settle down with um they should earlier than than our culture sort of um permits them you shouldn't push aside good life partners because you know the culture tells you you need to to see the the French Riviera three more times before <laughs> you consider uh getting married right yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> that's so
1: specific it made me laugh <laughs> uh,
0: that's like a, a bugaboo of mine by the way is the like uh travel is a substitute for um for for meaning like travel was lovely yeah. I, I, the french i've never been to the french riviera let alone three times i would love to go at least once you know um i'm not saying that it's not a pleasant thing but it, it isn't a substitute for some of these deeper questions of purpose and meaning um but
1: Well, so you haven't know, been, so you have no idea. Maybe the French Riviera is a
0: perfectly That's true. valid maybe. Maybe substitute.
1: Maybe so. And as somebody who's never been to the French Riviera, you have no place in uh, making this decision for others.
0: Well, I can definitely say that going to Florence in Italy, uh, where I, I fractured my ankle, is not a substitute for life.
1: I, I saw <laughs> Inez a couple of weeks ago with a single crutch uh, that was fastened to her arm, and I thought, <laughs> she is old. <laughs> <laughs> Have you? Have you? W- would you trade Jarrett for a trip to the French Riviera?
0: I mean, it depends. <laughs> ask me. Ask me. You know, and a thousand Instagram day, you likes. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. No. Um. I. I. I really do think that the balance between being direct, and I'm probably very bad at this myself, but like, because I do tend to just be blunt and direct. And, <laughs> uh, but yes, like, you do. I. I. I do think there's a lot of value in. Coming at this in an open-minded way with people, because so often these ideas, to for example, the the research that Mary Aberstadt puts forward, and she talks yes. about on this podcast, right? People are grappling with the questions that human beings have always grappled with, except they have nothing to hold on to in trying to answer those questions. You know, what is my purpose? What happens after I die? They have no like institutions that used to help people make sense of their lives in that fundamental way. Um, And so I think we do end up with a lot of backwards rationalization um, that leads to ideologically dumb things like the idea that there's no differences between men and women, even forgetting for a moment about the whole trans issue, but even, you know, in, in the way that men and women have different sexual impulses, right? And and having a society that actually tries to reconcile those impulses in, in like a, a positive, productive way, rather than, um, you know, I think what everybody at this point agrees is a unproductive way, uh, and is not a good sexual culture between men and women um, in this country today. So, I mean, it's it's too easy, and I, I sometimes I definitely fail to live up to this standard myself. But um, I, this this article was a really good reminder to me that a lot of times this is this is these are views that people come to because they are disappointed, yeah. or or uh, because they have confronted things in their lives that, or, or they just haven't gotten um, they haven't gotten the life that they they thought they would, and so they're building. Uh, an ideology to try to cover that. Um, one of the yes. saddest parts uh, of this to me was uh, in the, in the middle um, she writes because a romantic rejection could mess up your brain chemistry for months. Um, it's helped uh, when deciding with whom to spend time to know in advance, which lane you're in what was reasonable to expect from another person. Um, so that just made me profoundly sad, not only because of the obvious stuff about, you know you're slotting yourself in into a, a situation where you have no no right sort of to to ask people to treat you like a full human being in a sexual relationship that's what it seems like to me but then the fact that you have to point to brain chemistry to to justify why it's it's not a good thing to have your heart broken well and here
1: i wanted to read another Passage that goes along with exactly what you're just saying. Another friend who lives in Los Angeles and asked not to be named downloaded the app late one night in 2020. She was house sitting at her parents' home in the suburbs, alone, bored, horny, and wasted, she told me, swiping right on everybody who was a reasonable prospect. Within 30 minutes, she had a flood of messages. She started chatting with a guy who lived three hours away. They moved to video and he offered to make the drive. By then, it was one in the morning. She waited, trying to stay awake. He arrived and busied herself at her parents' bar, muddling herbs from the refrigerator, making cocktails for the two of them. They had had sex that night and again in the morning it's it's just like this girl is alone in her parents home in the suburbs and has sex with a stranger she just met on an app and the article is presenting that as the quote grown-up hookup uh app and and as to your point i think it was blake master like for
0: the cocktails you know the, the- yeah The 20-something way of having this kind of meaningless hookup is that you have, like, beers in your fridge, but you've now graduated to a mature level of hookup because you make the cocktails and you muddle your...
1: your parents bought the ingredients and furnished the like. It's just ridiculous, and uh, but to your point, I think it was like Blake Masters, and I don't know what context this was in. And I do generally like Blake Masters. He called the left psychopaths, and this is where Democrats psychopaths, something like this. And I think, and as this is where you and I are kind of going, like. It is true, I guarantee you, and actually there's surveys on this, that mental health issues are higher, self-reported numbers are higher on the left. Um, and it is true that we have in the same sense that we affirm, let's say, gender dysphoria. We have affirmed um, mental illness or the implications or consequences of mental illness in ways that have empowered, uh, psychopaths to like rule based on this affirmation of, uh, completely mixed up ideas. Uh, Like the, the trans issue is probably the best one. And there's a lot of talk about the left being sort of demonic and satanic and twisted. And I'm actually really. I I really gravitate towards that language because I do see something like really dark and spiritual happening in our culture. And I think that language does help people uh consider the spiritual implications of why things are feeling and getting so dark, but... It's really important, I think, for the right to understand why people are going there. And it's partially because of a culture that the Republican Party helped construct, which is so completely devoid of meaning. Um, And the structural changes that have to happen are immense um, for for that to be fixed. This is not a a battle about uh, policy. That's not to say policy isn't part of the battle, but it's not a battle about limited government. It's not a battle about, uh, again, it's not to say that's not important, um, but this is a about, you know, something much deeper about living in this high tech world. Um, and by high tech, I mean, literally everything for the printing press on <laughs> um, existing in this high tech world without uh, sort of entropying and destroying the human race and devolving into Mad Max and. Um, this is like what we're, we're figuring out right now. Um, and so it just very, t- to your point, I think we agree on this. Like it, it's very, very understandable for me why people find themselves in this position and why they think, you know, maybe when you and I talk that we sound, um, like, crazy zealot phil schlafly uh caricatures uh and i get i completely understand that and i think if you don't understand that then you're probably not going to be a very effective uh messenger at this point
0: yeah i think that's that's probably almost probably true almost certainly true um yeah i mean i i think all the the language and the i mean for somebody who's an atheist the demonic stuff makes me laugh um but Uh, I do think it's just different ways of getting at, there does seem to be something deeper and like psychologically messed up about a lot of this. Um, And I just don't think we have, I know I don't have the language to really touch on it. Maybe if you're religious, you move it into the spiritual realm, but there is something like deeper about purpose, about meaning, um, about, you know, life um, that seems to be at issue here. That isn't, as you say, that isn't just like, Policy or um sort of even even political disagreements I think is is on the one cent that's kind of excludes this deeper level at which we seem to be breaking down um speaking of of uh mental illness, there's a huge uh study that just got released uh, this month that shows that. There is no evidence, apparently, for for um, depression being the result of a chemical imbalance. Uh, that's something that this this author in in the, in the New Yorker, of course, wrote about. Um, that even romantic rejection messes up your brain chemistry, right? Um, but it, it turns out that there it's not clear that depression and some of the more common um, mental illnesses in this country are linked to chemical imbalances in the brain as, as it seems to be the shorthand. And um, my understanding is actually with the, the scientific literature is that there's been some skepticism for some time about whether at least um, whether the, this kind of chemical balance theory um, is correct, but it is primarily advances a theory because we know that SSRIs do something um, dealing with mm-hmm. depression, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the underlying cause is a natural imbalance, for example. Um, but I, I did want to bring up this this study, because this is something I've been getting into trouble (laughs) trouble (laughs) for a long time. um, And I have some admittedly controversial views on it, and I could certainly be wrong.
1: They are controversial, and I think we're going to disagree on this. Bring it on. (laughs)
0: um, But I I think a lot of the mental illness is exactly what we were just discussing, a quote-unquote mental illness. I I don't think it's a biological pathology. I, I think it's suffering and I'm not downplaying that it's a real suffering in that sense, but I I think a lot of it is in response to asking questions uh, that are really fundamental to our existence and not getting or not being satisfied with any of the answers that are given. Um, and I, I, I don't think that despair, I think despair is a natural human reaction to asking those questions and not being able to answer them. Um, And so I I object to the entire idea that this is this is somehow a pathology, which is not to say that there aren't pathologies um, dealing with the brain. Obviously, the brain can break in the same way that my leg can break Um, (laughs) or is broken. Uh, Maybe some people will say my brain is broken, too. Uh, But (laughs) no, but I, I do think that there is something deeper than a mere biological pathology going on here. The fact that one in six Americans is on these like brain altering drugs, brain chemistry opening, um, altering drugs, I I think is indication of what we were just talking about, about this article, but more broadly than the sexual context, um, rather than some kind of biological problem that can be solved with a doctor's office visit or a pill.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we probably actually agree um, because, well, we agree to an extent. I think, um, you know, there's something – I'm trying to think of how to say this. There's something – very real. If you, if you've lost your framework for exactly what you just said in this, that despair is part of the human condition. If you've lost all perspective on that because, um, you know, you live in a culture of instant gratification where, you know, frankly, our poorest are our most obese. Right? Maybe that seems like it's off topic, but like despair f- through human history was often linked to poverty, which was almost always linked to starvation. In the United States of America, poverty is is linked to obesity, to diabetes, to an excess, um, and to seeking uh, comfort uh, from the despair of poverty in the excess. Um, and, and so that's a. I, I mean, I know that seems off topic, but it's kind of an interesting little thing. Um, so. I agree on the one hand, like Freddie DeBoer has this great podcast interview he did with Barry Weiss recently, where he talked about the um, gentrification of disability is what he called it and referred to all of the girls on TikTok who purport to have tics or seem to give themselves tics, um, which are you know, obviously biologically uh, experienced by people who have autism in ways that seem just purely designed to gain some sort of identity status and to gain some sort of attention. And actually now that I'm thinking about this, I actually think that's what I was talking about um, in the last subject, um, when it comes to like, well, we have to understand why uh people are going in that direction. Like is it abhorrent to uh try to, you know, cash out on somebody's very serious disability? Yes. Um but if you have lost all perspective and you lost all, you, you lose all sense of meaning and you're seeking purpose and fulfillment in an identity, um, You know, that makes you kind of different, makes you stand out and gives you some reason for value so that you can post TikToks informing other people and, you know, creating a sense of solidarity with the community and having an in-group status on something meaningful. That's where this is coming from. Um, so I think, you know, there is really, it's, it's very frustrating to me, uh, to watch you know, for, for personal reasons, people totally exploit, um, and commodify this label of, uh, mental illness and to claim it when they have zero claim to it. Um, but I also think people are making themselves sick. Um, and I think the culture is making themselves sick. And I think to the extent that there is performative disability, a hundred percent, I agree with that. I agree that SSRIs are, um, there's something going on with them uh, that, you know, they're they're largely I remember one of the things with uh, one of the I think it was Chantix. It was it's one of the smoking medications or stop smoking medications. Um, there there were like a rash of suicides when people first started taking it. And the theory was that I'm not a doctor. So this is not serious medical advice, nor is it a commentary on Chantix, but it blocks your pleasure sensors, um, so that you don't get pleasure from smoking, um, which is a great way, obviously, to stop smoking. Right? If it's not gratifying you, the nicotine's not gratifying you, then you can more easily stop smoking. But then it also like it impedes your ability to feel pleasure. Period. Um, and so you can sort of understand not then
0: smoking, you're blocking. <laughs>
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think we've adapted a lot of these technologies really quickly. Um, and I do mean SSRIs as a technology. So I do. I think there's something off there. Uh, I wouldn't tell people I'm not on the extreme end of that, uh, because I do think they're really, really helpful to people uh, immediately. Uh, they do have a lot of consequences that big pharma doesn't want to talk about, that the left doesn't want to talk about, that big business doesn't want to talk about. Um, I do think they're really important to some people in the near term. All that is to say, uh, the world that we live in, it's interesting to see how quickly some people's depression and anxiety can be cured in studies with exercise. Um, it's almost as effective as SSRIs. Again, I'm not a doctor, but you can look up this information. Um, almost as effective as SSRIs in, in certain contexts. Uh, we live way more sedentary. This is like hyper novelty. We're, we're way more sedentary. We eat way more processed food. We eat way more food. We eat different food. Um, we don't have to scavenge for our food. All of these have so many blessings. Um, but we we too often haven't thought about the downside of them. And so I do think that like when you have dopamine receptors that we've transferred all of our politics and personal lives onto, uh, we are genuinely making ourselves sick. And some of these mental illnesses um, are really real and serious. They might not be... They're, they're not... You know, in many cases, like diagnos diagnosable autism, um, but people are are the sickness is very real. Uh, if even it's not as severe as they say, I do think we're living in ways that are making ourselves mentally very sick.
0: Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with anything that you said there. I, I think my objection isn't that that it's not real. My objection is that I think it comes from something other than biologic pathology, hmm. um, and.
1: Even frankly, like it, it, like young girls who have ins- problems with Instagram because their brains have been rewired by social media to like need the dopamine response with scrolling and ins- an infinite scroll basically.
0: The, the solution for that is a pill, though,
1: right? Oh, like, sure, okay. Your
0: your your brain chemistry is dependent on your psychological choices as well. There is an element of will to this, which is not to say that it's fake um, or that you can think your way out of these things, but uh, I. I you are like your, your mental patterns. And this is the whole premise, for example, of something like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? But your, your mental patterns affect your brain chemistry. Your brain chemistry is not like a static thing that you're, you're, and that's not to say there aren't some people born with some like actual pathology with their brain chemistry. I'm happy to like concede that that's the case for some small percentage of people. But I think a lot of the people in this case are, um, And and this study shows that it's it's not really their underlying brain chemistry that is causing this very real sense of of despair and illness. Right. Um, And and I think the other problem with treating suffering and despair as though it is uh, somehow aberrant to the human condition when it's very much a part of being human. It's anti-human
1: metaverse stuff. Yes. It's like you'll be in your matrix pod and you'll be happy.
0: Well, it's 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 not just that. I mean, that's that's a whole nother point that's that's I think worth exploring um, in more depth. But it, to me, it, it leads to narcissism mm-hmm. I mean, when you when you think that you are that your despair means that you're somehow broken and that you need to like have the world fix you um, because you're the only person who's ever like experienced suffering and despair. Um, I'm exaggerating for for effect here, but but that is kind of the underlying impulse. It's like, oh, my my brain is especially broken. That I can't deal with, you know, this suffering. Um, my brain is especially broke. I, I think it, it it kind of makes us think about our suffering as as though we it's only happening to us, as though you know millions and billions of human beings um, over time haven't confronted some of these same questions and despaired uh, about the answers. And I, I think that really does lead us to this demand that we see across, across society now, where it's, it's like the world must fix itself and around your sort of mental sensitivities or the things that make you anxious or sad or depressed. Right. Um, And I think, I think those two things are connected, treating it as though it's, it's, um, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's something broken about you that, you feel despair. That's, I mean, that's fundamentally, I just disagree with. So my, my, my crusade (laughs) such that it is uh, against, against SSRIs is not even to deny that they, they have been helpful for some people. I think, especially on the short term, as you said, there there aren't a lot of good studies showing long-term positive results and there are huge side effects. Um, So I, I still think they should be like, you know, you should be very well informed by your doctor about all of the consequences of of taking these drugs. Um, but it's not to say that I think they should never be prescribed or nobody should ever take them. It's just I don't think they're an answer to some of these questions, and I think relying on these drugs is not. It doesn't solve the problem long term. It might be like a, a stopgap solution, but it, it's not going to solve the underlying questions here.
1: Well, in fact, it creates a problem long term, because it's very, very, very difficult to get off SSRIs and can cause people um, incredible anguish that can involve suicide. And if you, you know, you, it basically hooks you for years and years and years, unless you want to go through a very difficult and very challenging and very risky process of getting off of it. Um, it's a solution for big pharma, right? Because you create basically permanent customers. Um, but it is very difficult for people who benefit in the near term, then, you know, to wean themselves off. Off of it when they might be better. And to your point, cognitive behavioral therapy is absolutely amazing. Um, And I mean, it is is truly amazing. And you can absolutely rewire uh, things that are that feel like they're misfiring in your brain through cognitive behavioral therapy in ways that um, rival what the drugs can do. Not for everybody, and not in every circumstance, but you can. And the same thing goes for exercise and religion. And again. People who exercise and are have faith and have families and have all this stuff and aren't materialist heathens uh still can struggle with, with mental illness. Um but that is to say, just a lot of things that we do in, in modern life are uh making us very sick, and they can then be reversed by recognizing that that they're a consequence of some of these very everyday things that are a part of modern life, uh, whether it's what we're eating, how little we're working out, you know, if we're just sitting at a desk all day and driving to the office instead of walking and working manual labor, whatever it is, we can address them, um, but we have to recognize that they need to be addressed.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and I would never say that these kinds of problems are limited to those who for example, don't have family or like a stable family structure or something like that. That's obviously not true. Although as you pointed out earlier, it is associated with a part of the political spectrum. Like it is higher in incidence among those who describe themselves as liberal and very liberal than it is. And and I tend to think that has less to do with politics and more to do with exactly that kind of family structure that Brad Wilcox and others talk about, right? That is associated with happiness. So it's not that these two things are totally unrelated, but I would never go so far as to say like, oh, this is like an exclusive, this is only a problem for blue haired, like, well, college maniacs, right? The,
1: something I remember, this was back when I worked at uh, Young America's Foundation in 2015. It was my first job out of college. It was I was doing... PR for them as their spokeswoman. And, um, it was really in the early days of Ben Shapiro's viral campus, uh, appearances when, uh, the, the outbreak, the woke outbreak at Mizzou before pre-woke woke outbreak at Mizzou happened back in 2015, um, over some racial disputes. Uh, Ben, have yeah, sent Ben to, mizzou and i think it was then it might have been when he was at uh, cal state la he was talking about he used to use this a lot in his speeches i don't know if he still does about how you know if his grandfather thought that he was or his grandfather did think that he was like a robot or something like that and they gave him lithium they didn't tell him you are a robot um and he was talking about this in the context of transgenderism you know when when somebody who is biologically a woman thinks that they are indeed actually a man, you give them some help uh, and whether that's a pill uh, or some sort of treatment or actually just making it easier for them uh the bottom line is you don't tell them they are something that they're not and so the affirmation of uh these the, the affirmation of mental illness is not good for vulnerable, suffering people. Um, that's, it's not good at all, but it is very reflective of how our culture treats these things as though, uh, people should find comfort in the material world, um, and not try to overcome, um, things that make them uncomfortable. See, the, the affirmation of, um, the, the negative consequences of people's mental illnesses or, um, you know, incorrect perspectives, it is not healthy for them. It's not healthy for our society, certainly when that affirmation becomes policy. Um, and when that affirmation becomes the mainstream cultural message, which is actually what's happened. It's not just like isolated cases of respecting people's pronouns uh, here and there so that they would not harm themselves, you know, that, that night or anything after your conversation, anything like that. Um, this affirmation is now policy. It's now the mainstream sort of cultural position. That's not healthy for people who are suffering, um, and it's not healthy for our country or our culture. And we've definitely gotten to that point.
0: Yeah. I mean, my, I guess my perspective on all of this is, you know, life is hard. Um, it's hard enough. And the baseline of life is not contentment. It's, um, <laughs> that the baseline is, is not, I, I worry about like where our baseline is, where our expectations are, right? Because You are so Slavic. Our expectation <laughs> the baseline of life is abject perfect. misery. I <laughs> think that like, like expectation is that we're all going to be happy and that's the baseline. And I, I guess in some way that's very American, right? It's the um, pursuit of happiness, right? But that's the point you get to pursue it. Um, it's not guaranteed to you. That's not the baseline for human existence. And when we come into these questions with that baseline, I, I worry that again, just, you know, that it, it makes us narcissistic. It makes us, um, it makes us more fragile because there is a certain bracing, uh, respect of thinking like, I'm not the only one to deal with this. Therefore I'm not special. And, and look at all these people in in history and, and alive today around me who are dealing with this you know, despair and questions of purpose and meaning and, and they carry on. So um, there is this sort of bracing impact of not thinking about it as though you're uniquely fragile or uniquely broken, or you, you know, you need to, that there's something broken in yourself that you need to fix Um, which is again, not to, I want to be really clear here, you know um, it's not to say that, that actual pathologies don't exist and and probably need correctives. Um, But I, I I mean, I don't see how anyone can look at the levels of people who um, who either identify as having uh, one of these sort of milder quote unquote mental illnesses right Not like schizophrenia, but anxiety, depression, and the, the level of people, um, the percentage of people who are on these these SRI drugs, um, and and I do think that this study deals a blow to that sort of universe of ideas, right where. Uh, we imagine that a sixth of the population is just sort of mentally broken, um, in, in a physical way, uh, as opposed to maybe we have a sixth of the population that's mentally broken because the way that we live and we, the way that we've confronted, um, the questions that every civilization has confronted is as, as you said earlier, is making us sick, right? Like life's hard. All right. Already like ideology, um, the ideological answer on these things, I think, uh, if anything makes it worse, not better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's true, and it's a good example. You were talking about this earlier of how these things are not thought of as political. But they are, Um, and to me, it is part of this like anti-humanism that has no political party. It's just a consequence of our modernity. It's a consequence of um, living in a world that is so uh, tech capable that our comfort is met, Uh, even when we are impoverished. um, You know, our our comfort is met. Our basic material comforts are met, Um, and you know you. It's just, we're going into a really dark place. That's why the like blue pill, red pill. When I first watched The Matrix, which was very recently, I'd never watched it before because I don't enjoy action movies uh, because I'm the a woman.
0: not just an action movie. Yeah, I'm yeah, not an action yeah. movie fan either, but I like The Matrix.
1: Uh, well, I watched it and I was like, wow, this movie is really good, uh, but profoundly damaging. Um, although it is, you know, in some ways, like a total rejection of... Um, Oh, I don't know. Rejection of materialism. Um, it also really shows where we're headed uh, in the sense that like you will own nothing and you'll be happy. Right. Was that like a, a world economic forum, like a very real thing, not like an Alex Jones paraphrasing of it? Like you will own nothing and you will be happy. You are going to just be provided for uh, your material needs are going to be provided for by a state life of Julia style um, and you will be happy. Because your material needs are all accounted for and you can just, you know, eat what you want um, and have access to, you know, your state issued Peloton in your high rise apartment building where everyone has a little cupboard. Um as I always say, what are apartments if not cupboards for humans? Um and it's it's just like, yeah, that's that's where we're headed. It's it sucks. And people at this point, though, have been so conditioned to think one way um, that it's hard to blame them for finding and expecting their comforts to come from that. Um, because we are we are so far afield uh, from reality. Uh, it's like why the Jordan Peterson book was a massive bestseller. Like just giving people, um, you know, advice that's not plain materialism for contentment, not happiness, but contentment um, because people know they're missing it. And that's the only silver lining, right? People know something's wrong, but they don't quite have the tools to fix it.
0: Yeah. I guess they expect comfort from their comforts. Um, yeah. It, it, it really does remind you of brave new world. Right. Um, yeah. And, and to your, to your last point to kind of wrap this up here. Um, it, it does make me wonder again, if, if, because we know there's something wrong with us, instinctively, um, we know that there's something wrong. I wonder if that instinct will fade over time um, to a brave new world type situation where um, we have to have somebody That's come from the, the outside, right? That's why there's always these dystopian setups, often have somebody coming from the outside to observe. And part of what makes it a dystopia is that no one thinks they're living in a dystopia except for you or the narrator or, right? So coming in from from our understanding, it seems like a dystopia, but there aren't very many great dystopian novels that don't include that element of nobody actually thinking that they live in this world in a dystopia right?
1: Yeah, um, and that's where you're getting at with SSRIs, right? Like, it's not num- a numbing agent, uh, basically, in a very, very brave new world sense. And again, we're not saying that people don't need them, uh, but... Some people probably don't who are on them, um, but it's a numbing agent in the same way that Netflix is a numbing agent. In the same way that iPhones are a numbing agent uh, that numb you to sort of your spiritual con- concerns by purporting to provide all of this materialistic happiness uh, via dopamine notifications from social media. Um, it's the way that fast food is a, a numbing agent. The way that alcohol is a numbing agent. Um, you know that's why I don't like seltzer because you don't feel like you're drinking alcohol. It just is. Yeah, you know that, that's not to say i don't enjoy like a fruity cocktail every once in a while but you should you should feel like you're drinking booze when you're drinking booze um you shouldn't just be sating yourself through this endless guzzling of flavorless water anyway that's a different episode probably <laughs>
0: <laughs> well next time we will do it over seltzers actually i, I don't like seltzer either but I, I don't have a grand philosophical theory as to why i don't like seltzer i just figure that it's i prefer vodka um <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Slavic, you're so Slavic. I prefer
0: I prefer, I prefer vodka yeah. and misery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm a firm believer that all mental problems can be solved with vigorous exercise and vodka in the right combination. Uh, please do right. not take any medical advice from this podcast. Uh, right. Emily, thank you so much for, for joining us once again on on High Noon After Dark. We do this every month. Um, our regular listeners will know that every month you can hear Emily and I go through a docket of issues like these. Um, sometimes it's more political. Sometimes it's more about psychology like this time um, or, or some tangential or at least seemingly tangential topics that we think say something about where we are and where we're headed as a society. Uh, so, Emily, thanks. Thanks for coming on once again. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman, including After Dark, is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube or IWF.org. Be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon.